Anybody excited about Jesus besides me this morning? Now, come on, you're going to have to do better than that. I said, anybody excited about Jesus Christ this morning? Well, they sent your chocolate brother from North Lake County to come show y'all some love, and I'm glad to be with you. Uh, just a little housekeeping before we get started in the African-American community. Uh, we call our preaching dialogical preaching, which is simply a conversation between the pulpit and the pew. To put it quite simply, if you feel an amen on you, feel free to say amen. I'm okay with that. Help a preacher preach this morning. Amen? All right, we're practicing. It looks like you guys are getting it, all right? And when you say amen, I preach shorter. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just messing around. We preach long no matter what. <clears throat> uh, today we will be in the book of Ephesians. So if you have your Bible, you want to take that out and uh, go to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to camp out there today. When you're there, say amen. If you're not there, say wait a minute. All right, we're going to wait on you. All right, if you're there, say amen. If you're not there, use the table of contents. We will not judge you. You got to do what you got to do. All right, patience is running out, cutting into my sermon preaching. I got to get going. I want to tag this text this morning, glory and unity. Glory and unity. When I was younger in grade school, I would run home after being dropped off at the church, I mean, after being dropped off at the corner by the bus. I would run home to catch that classic TV show, Power Rangers. And don't act like you don't know what the Power Rangers and who they are. Oh, I love the Power Rangers. You had the Red Ranger, the Yellow Ranger, the Black Ranger, the Pink Ranger, and so forth. But my favorite part and the part that all Power Ranger fans waited for was to hear this one line, it's morphin' time. Oh, yeah, when we heard morphin' time, we knew that the TV show was getting ready to have a showdown. Uh, one time, since we're family this morning, I want to be honest with you, one day I took being a Power Ranger a little bit too serious. And I went to school thinking that I was a Power Ranger, and my mom showed up and showed me who the real Power Ranger was and put me back in my place. But when that line, Morphin' Time, is spoken, we know that our favorite Ranger is about to become something we only dream to be. When your Ranger morphed into his costume, it left this sort of awestruck feeling inside of you. Of course, it was more than enough to see my favorite Power Ranger in his individual glory. But when they united, when they joined powers in their skills together, the show went to a whole nother level. Come on, Megazord, with your bad self. You know when they got together, they turned into this gigantic beast, and they were unstoppable. You couldn't stop the Power Rangers when they got together, and you left each episode ready for the next episode. There's something about when we come together where there is power and glory. I didn't know when 
when I was in the third grade that Power Rangers was conveying to my brain that there is power in unity. There is glory in unity. Moreover, they were trying to show me the importance of unity. Come to find out whoever wrote Power Rangers was doing their exegetical study in the book of Ephesians because they stole the idea from the Apostle Paul. Uh, Come to find out that the Apostle Paul would talk about the importance of unity way before the Power Rangers ever came out. The Apostle Paul, through the Holy Spirit-inspired writing, was trying to get the church of Ephesus to become its own megazord. Paul, with all of his might, was trying to convey the importance of unity. Indeed, God has been calling his church to unity for quite some time. Now, I'm not arguing that God has called us to be Power Rangers. Oh, no. We are called to something far greater than Power Rangers. We have been called by the Lord of the universe to be his sons and daughters. Not just sons and daughters, but united sons and daughters. Friends, this morning, I would like to pick up the fervency and the passion of the Apostle Paul and convey to you this morning the importance of unity. If you have your Bibles, drop your eyes down in Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 1, we're going to end at verse 6. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Church, this morning, we plant ourselves in the middle of the book of Ephesians. And one of the problems with starting in the middle of the book is the same problem with starting in the middle of a movie. Or when someone comes in in the middle of your binge watching and they want to draw conclusions on the TV show you took the time out to watch. Think that they know the episode. Oh, this is going to happen. Actually, that's not going to happen. If you would go back to episode one, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. There is something when you start at the beginning of something that it has a way of altering the conclusion that you had when you started in the middle. We see that Paul has rooted our text today in three deep theological gospel-centered chapters. We know this because verse 1 says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, I was taught when you see therefore, you ask, what is therefore, therefore? And this therefore marks a turning point in the book of Ephesians. Paul is getting ready to switch gears on us. The question is, Paul, what ground have you covered up to this point? There are a few things to understand about Paul's writing style. Paul always starts with theology and then flows into practicality. Paul always roots us in what is true before he tells us what to do. 
He always roots us in what is true before he tells us what to do. That was a little poetic. I don't know if you caught it, but I could do something with that. This is so critical that you as a believer understand who you are before you do. If you skip past whom you are, Christian, you will be a self-righteous jerk at best. Paul uses the same method in Romans 12.1, Colossians 3.5, where he goes from doctrine to duty, to indicative to imperative. Paul wants the church of Ephesus to walk in a manner worthy of their calling, and so he spends three chapters telling them who they are. I I want us to zoom in on two words here, worthy and calling, worthy and calling. When Paul says worthy, he uses the Greek word aox. I practiced that in the mirror, and I still got it wrong which has the root idea of weight. This is the word which we derive our English word, axiom, which means to be of equal weight. To be of equal weight. Paul wants them to walk in a way that shows and glorifies the gospel of Jesus Christ, that glorifies the Father. Paul is calling us this morning to strive to walk in a manner worthy of the blessings that, we, that have been lavished on us in chapters 1 through 3. In other words, as you consider all that Christ has done for you, Christian, as you consider the gospel in its totality, as you consider the cross, as you consider the blood, as you consider his resurrection, as you consider his coming again, as you consider all that God has lavished on you, Paul says, walk in a way that, 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 that says to the world, Christ has bought me and I live for him and for him alone. Or, another way of saying it, walk in a matter, manner that shows others God is your Father. Walk in a way that shows that God is your Father. When someone is part of our family, we expect them to act in a certain manner. To not act in a way that brings shame on the family. It's like when I came to pick up my son Dekai from school. After getting a phone call about his behavior, I was told he was acting out. And the lady, the teacher was conveying this to me as he was standing right there. I said, can you run that by me again? She said he was acting up. I said, he did what? I looked at the guy. I said, boy, if you don't stop acting like you don't have a mommy and daddy at home, I told him, you know, we don't act like that. In other words... You carry my name, son, therefore we don't act like that. Now note, I didn't say, son, you better act right if you want to keep my name. No, I told him who he was. I reminded him of who he was and then told him what he should be doing in light of his identity. You have my name, son. It is who you are that makes me require more of you. Before we have expectations, we have placement. Before Paul gives expectations, he gives placements. I love the way one writer puts it. Paul urges us Christians to lead a life worthy of the calling to which we have been called. 
This does not mean that we should try to deserve our place in God's favor. I want to be clear that I am not arguing that we ought to try to earn or strive a place in Jesus. Jesus has done that through the gospel. But it does mean that we should recognize how much our place in God's favor deserves from us. The focus is not on our worth, but on the worth of our calling. That's where the emphasis is. One look at chapters 1 through 3, and you begin to see the immeasurable worth of this calling. In chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says, God chose us for himself before the world was created. Did you know, church, that before you were created, God set his love on you, that God had you in mind way before you ever showed up on planet Earth? And I almost shouted at that point, but I kept reading and dropped my eyes down to verse 5, and he said he predestined us to be his children, and that means heirs of all our Father owns. Do you know, Christian, that one day the earth and all there is will be yours? This is why, as a believer, I can let go of these temporary things. As Paul says it, these are light momentary afflictions in comparison to what, Paul? and to the eternal weight of glory that is coming. So I don't have to be a slave to material possessions. I don't have to be a slave to society. I can be free because all that Christ has done for me will be lavished on me in the coming days. And I almost jumped out of my seat when I read that. And I kept on going and I showed up at verse 7 in chapter 1. He said he sent Christ to attend uh, atone for all our trespasses. And I ought to pause just right there. He didn't say some of my sins. He didn't say a few of my sins. He said that God has atoned for, oh, maybe you didn't hear me. God atoned for all of my sin and all of its totality, past, present, and future. We ought to never grow callous to the fact that God died for our sins, church. Oh, but we serve a good, good, good father. And not only did Christ die for our sins, and God could have stopped right there, but in verse 13 it says, He sealed us with His Holy Spirit to preserve us forever. If you wake up tomorrow believing in Jesus, it is not because you're cute. It is not because you came to church. It is because God put His divine Holy Spirit down in the inside of you that keeps beckoning you to Jesus. Jesus, day after day after day, I should have walked away from Christ a long time ago, but God has given me the Holy Spirit. And then I flipped the page and I landed in chapter 2, and he says he promises to spend an eternity increasing our joy in the immeasurable riches of his grace. Oh, that's so exciting because God is going to fill us with joy for all eternity. I'm not talking about that kind of glory and joy and goosebumps you get from watching your favorite actor or singer. I'm not talking about that. Michael Jackson can only moonwalk so much. He can only spin so much. And then after a while, I'm like, I need somebody else to impress me. But God for all of eternity will be the center of our focus and the center of our praise. And we'll never, 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 ever, ever, ever get boring to us. And then in chapter 3, you thought I was done. 
He has given us the mission as a church to display his wisdom even to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, a.k.a. the devil and the demons. Or as, or as chapter 1 verse 12 says, we are destined and appointed to live for the praise of his glory. God uses the church to show off his wisdom. Satan didn't see it coming. Death by death didn't see it coming. And now God has made a new people. God the Father is no dead be dead. He takes care of his children. So when Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling, he has all of that in mind. This is what he has in mind when he conveys to the church of Ephesus to walk in a manner worthy. He has three chapters of beautiful promises. And how can we not walk in a manner worthy of our calling after all that God has accomplished and done for us? How can we not, church, answer and step up to this calling? The gospel of Jesus Christ has made all this true through his blood. It is who you are. We do not have a deadbeat father. Your father in heaven loves you, and you ought to act like he loves you. Your father loves you, and you ought to act like he loves you. Now, Paul shifts gears and tells us how we should walk in a manner worthy of the calling. He helps us to understand how to walk now that we have been regenerated. He tells us how to walk now that we are no longer spiritually dead. He tells us how to walk now that we have been united with Christ. He tells us how to walk now that we have died with Christ. He tells us how to walk now that sin no longer has mastery over us. He says walk in unity. The first thing Paul urges us to do is to walk in unity in verse 1. And then in verses 2 and 3, he tells us how to maintain that unity. Drop your eyes down to verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience and bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, Paul gives us a description of what our character should be with the end goal of unity in mind. What Paul is asking us to do is not easy. What Paul is asking us to do this morning, it is not easy, church, by no stretch of the imagination. First, he requires that we have humility and gentleness. Understand that in Paul's day, humility was looked down on. It was considered a slave-like quality. What was seen as great and desired in the Greco-Roman period was boasting and self, self-sufficient attitudes. You know what I'm talking about, that I don't need anybody but myself. It's, it's, it, it's in our nature. It is our inclination to be our own superwoman, to be our own superman. We don't want to depend on anybody. We don't want to have to answer to anybody. We want to be on top. That's our nature. And we hate when people trip over our greatness, when they don't recognize us for how great we are. But it is not our greatness that is the issue. It is that we 
we don't see ourselves the way that we ought to see ourselves. The Bible says that we are sinners and we are shaped in iniquity. Paul calls himself a wretch. How many people woke up in the morning and called yourself a wretch? You probably didn't do that. You probably looked in the mirror and said, okay, I look good. It's time to go to church. But to be quite honest, the Bible penetrates past our outward reflection and it digs into the heart. And the Bible says that we run away from God. We don't like God. We want to be the center of our lives. We all hate by nature to be in the position of needing people. We want to be on top. We oppose anyone who comes against our ego. And then for some of us, we have been so angry and so bitter for so long over offenses that our hearts have become as hard as a rock. And I want to slow down here because I know what it is to be offended. And I know what it is to struggle with forgiveness. But I want to encourage you this morning that Christ will give you the power to forgive. And if you have an issue with your brother or sister, go to them. Talk to them and let them know what they have done. And hopefully, as the Bible says, you, would, you will win them over. I urge you to do so. The only way we will become humble in this church is if we see the great blessings of the gospel, all of us. We must see the cross. We have received blessings so great, words would be unfit to express the only proper response to a dying Savior, him coming into the world. As John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. Go down to verse 14, and the Word became flesh, and he came to be the Lamb of God for us. And the only response to a dying God on your behalf is humility. Lowliness, getting down low. How do you see God dying for you and remain arrogant? It is impossible. When God, when the God of the universe dies for wretches and lying and cheating and stealing and fornicating people, our only response is lowliness and humility. But it is hard to be humble when we compare ourselves to one another. One time in Epic, Epic is a ministry at the Gary campus. I had this 12-year-old young guy boasting about how good he was. He was in the gym. He was doing crossovers. I mean, he looked like LeBron James out there. I mean, he's shooting from every side of the court. Now note that this 12-year-old is playing with eight and nine-year-olds. And he's like, Dex, did you see me out there? Did you see what I did? I said, yeah, I saw you. But I got some 14 to 18-year-olds coming in a second, and I want to see you do the same thing. And so they showed up, and I said, go ahead and get on out there and do what you were doing a second ago. And after they got done, he said, I don't want to play basketball no more. I don't want to play no more. I'm done. I'm retiring. But there is something when we compare ourselves to the righteousness of Jesus that it humbles us. It brings us down low. <laughs> Philippians 2.4 puts it this way. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affections and sympathy, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 
Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Church, we cannot have unity if everybody is puffed up on themselves. We ought to be humble around here, and I don't care what your accomplishments are in life. If you got degrees, cars, And Gary, we say street cred, street smarts. I don't care if you won the spelling bee in the third grade and had perfect attendance in Sunday school. Apart from Jesus Christ, me and my accomplishments are headed straight to hell. So Paul accompanies humility with gentleness. And gentleness will always accompany humility. The gentle person understands that all all he has secured has been by the grace of God. Everything that I have has been given to me by the grace of God. This gives him the inner strength to be a forgiving person who doesn't exercise retaliation, although they may be justified in doing so. The world would consider humility and gentleness as weak. Just look on Facebook and Twitter. The advice that people give us is to retaliate when wrong is done to us. But not so much Jesus, he didn't say a word. The gentle person, even in his fierce defense of others in truth, as John Wycliffe says, is mild. Gentleness is not evidence of weakness because Jesus Christ described himself as gentle. In Matthew, he says, I am gentle and lowly at heart. You're a man in the room. You got an issue with gentleness. Your Savior called himself gentle. Gentleness is not weak. Jesus was a manly man. He was 100% man. He was the most perfect man in the universe, and he called himself gentle and lowly in heart. Pride and self-promoting arrogance sows disunity. But humble, gentle men and women will strengthen the unity of God's church. And I believe we can be this by God's grace. Paul calls us to be gentle and to be humble, and you think that he would stop right there, and that's enough homework for us already. But Paul doesn't stop there. He presses it a little bit further, and he goes on, and he requires patience and forbearance from us in love. There will be no unity if there is no patience in forbearance. If you're married, you know so. Just keep looking at me. If you're married, you know you should know a whole lot about patience in forbearance. I know this because we are all sinners. If you are around sinners long enough, 
It's only a matter of time until you can't stand at least one of them. Sometimes I can barely stand myself. I have to show myself a lot of grace, right? There are times you can barely stand other people. The only people you need to exercise patience and forbearance on is imperfect people. They're the only people that need it. Imperfect people at some point will test your nerves. And I can testify this morning. And many of us probably got our nerves tested on the way to church, but we still made it. Praise God. Some of us didn't, right? But your nerves will be tested. There's going to be times where you say, I can't stand her. I can't stand him. I used to be okay with them until I start hanging around them. And you know what they say? You really don't know someone until you start living with them. And you start living with them and you really figure out who they are. You start doing church together, you really start figuring out who they are. And a lot of us like to stay on the outside because we don't want to get to know people and we don't want people to get to know us. It's easy to go to programs. It's, easy, it's harder to build relationships and get to know people because it's challenging you. However, God has called us to be patient and not short-tempered. How do I get power to be patient and not be short-tempered? I got to look at the gospel. And I got to see that Christ died for me, as Romans says, while I was yet a sinner. Which means that when I was spitting in God's face, going in my own direction, doing what I wanted to do, God was pursuing me. And the Bible is saying, you church do the same thing, pursue one another, even when it hurts. Early on in my marriage... Make sure my wife is not in here. Okay, she's not. Uh, I would get bent out of shape, waiting on my wife to get ready. Now, there's one thing when we are late and you're getting dressed. I can deal with that. But when we're late and you're not getting dressed, that's a whole nother ball game. And so I would be sitting on a recliner waiting on her, uh, saying my comments, of course, under my breath, of course, saying my comments under my breath, and next thing you know, I get heated. We get into a debate going back and forth and arguing, and then what happens? We, we're not going anywhere. We're staying home. And, and if we do go somewhere, we're both mad at each other. But the Lord had to teach me that it is more important to maintain unity with my wife than to be on time, to value her than to be on time. I'd rather be somewhere late with you than not to go with you at all. And as I calmed down, my gentleness changed her. I'm just messing around, it didn't. <laughs> I'm just messing around. Now we have gotten better. I mean, we still show up late, but we're two minutes earlier. I mean, that has to count for something. When Paul tells us to be patient and to forbear with one another, he says, in Love. Now, I don't want you to miss that phrase. Forbearance and patience. How, Paul? In love. Big difference. Because we can forbear people by just tolerating them. Paul is not calling us to tolerate one another. He's calling us to love one another with deep affections, to desire one another. Not say, I forgive you, don't come over my house. I forgive you, don't come around me. I forgive you, don't say nothing to me. That is not what Paul is saying. And so he brings this little caveat here, and he says, in love. 
to desire them, to forgive them, and to want to be in their presence, even your enemies. Love ought to be the fuel of our relationships. This is not shallow love. It is a deep, tender affection that comes from the Spirit. Each quality that Paul lists in this verse is not an external attitude, but it is an attitude of the heart. And the only way you get it is through the power of the Spirit. It is by the gospel power of the Holy Spirit that makes us desire, forbear, and be patient with one another. Now, Paul could have just left it at that. Be humble, be patient, be gentle, love one another, and walked away. But he did not do that, and I'm so glad that he didn't do it. Paul did not leave the unity of the church contingent on the church. He actually roots our unity in something that doesn't change, namely God. Now watch this in verses 4 through 6. Drop your eyes down. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to, one, to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now many New Testament scholars believe this might have been an early church confessional hymn. It's sort of like that song we sing these days. I believe in God our Father. I believe in Christ the Son. Our God is three in. Okay, just trying to make sure we got no heretics among us. All right, we're good. In these last three verses, we see that our unity is rooted in the unified saving work of the Trinity. First person of the Trinity that Paul brings up is the third person, the Spirit. Verse 4 says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. The Holy Spirit makes one body the church. There is only one church. There is only one church. There may be many members, but there is only one church. For by one spirit, we were called. I don't care if you're Jew, Greek, slave, free, short, tall, yellow, brown, white, male or female. It doesn't matter. The same spirit that called me is the same spirit that called you. And when he called us, he called us to one body. The Holy Spirit coordinates, orchestrates, and empowers the church. How does this church go for it? By the spirit of God. If I had to depend on you, if Pastor Mark had to depend on you, if Pastor Steve had to depend on, on any of us for the unity of the church, we're done. But it is by the Spirit. And then Paul brings up the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. We know who our Lord is this morning. We know who we bow to. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for us. We have one Lord and we bow to no one else. The only Lord I have is the one who rose from the dead. And I don't know about you, but when somebody raises from the dead, I'm following that guy right there. I'm not going to anybody else. I'm following this guy right here and I'm clinging to him, all right? I'm clinging to that guy. The one who walks with us 
is Jesus Christ. And his love protects us and it keeps us. And it doesn't matter if we're black or we're white or we're broke or we're rich or we're slave or we're free. Long hair, short hair, extensions. Strong, weak, muscle shirt, no muscle shirt. Doesn't matter. Same Lord. Philippians put it this way, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Our union is rooted in the fact that we all believe in the same Lord. And if we believe in the same Lord, we are of the same kingdom. If we are of the same kingdom, we have the same Father. And I don't know about you, but this Christian journey gets hard sometimes. And sometimes I want to quit. And sometimes I want to give up. And sometimes I want to throw in the towel. And sometimes I say, I don't think I can do this. And sometimes it becomes overwhelming, but we as the body of Christ must remind one another that our Lord Jesus Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he is sure to come again. We don't have a maybe hope. We have a sure hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So one thing that unites us is our hoping and waiting in the King of glory. Lastly, Paul brings up the Father the head of the Trinity, when it is all said and done, church, we all have the same father. Who's your daddy? You know what? I don't know where that came from, and I shouldn't even say that. Just scratch that out of the sermon. That that has nothing to do with anything. I have six siblings, and we are all different. My one brother loves drawing and music. I have another brother that loves working out, and I wish God would have gave that to me. It's just not fair. It's not fair. We have so many differences among us, but at the end of the day, that's my family. There are times in the family we fall out and argue, but at the end of the day, I still love my brother and my sister. Church, we might be different in plenty of ways. We might not agree on everything. We may fall out from here and there, but at the end of the day, we are family. We have the same father. Church, our unity is ultimately rooted in these grand truths. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. So know this, we are unified, church. Nothing can change these seven truths. We are unified whether we act like it or not. These truths are not subject to us. Thankfully, this is the case or the whole thing would fall apart. The promises are true in the Holy Trinity. And as surely as the Holy Trinity cannot be divided, the church of Jesus Christ cannot be be divided. Our unity is more solid than Mount Everest and more enduring than the universe. There is nothing in all of creation that can separate the church. We are held together by the enduring love and power of God Almighty. Well, if you are hearing me rightly, you should ask, well, Pastor Dexter, why is there so much outward division in the church then? You're thinking, I know Christians who will not speak to one another. I think Paul acknowledges this in verse 3, which is why he urges us. Paul urges us on the basis of what is true that we should be united. The issue is, is we just lack the experience, but it is true. Secondly, he urges us, he wants us to make haste in being unified. There is no room 
in God's church for rivalries and fractions. There's no room for that. Brothers and sisters, it is incumbent upon us to do our best to lead in unity and peace with one another. And oh, how easy it is to run to another church or to switch a campus or to not talk to one another or like the married people live in separate rooms. How easy it is for us to do that. But the Bible has not called us to that kind of behavior. God has called us to be unified and to go across the hallway to the other room where your brothers and sisters are and to love them and to dwell with them. If I can lean on the Power Rangers just one more time, there's something else that the Power Rangers teach us this morning. Although they were of different color, you had the Yellow Ranger, the Black Ranger, the White Ranger, but they did not allow color to divide them. Instead, they had a greater cause. And if the and if the Power Rangers can unite to defeat putties, I'm sure that the Church of Jesus Christ can unite over ethnic lines and ethnicity lines and financial lines and location lines in order to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to a dying world. And what do we say to a world when we are divided? We bring shame on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ. I'm trying to contain myself this morning because I know you're not used to this, but let me park my car over in the book of John for just a moment because Jesus walks up to the woman at the well. Now, Jesus, you know you shouldn't be talking to the woman at the well. Number one, she's a woman. Number two, she's a Samaritan, but Jesus doesn't care. He crosses over that line. He comes up to her. He finds her in her sin. He finds her in her mess. And he says, woman, if you knew who were talking to you, you'll ask me for water and I would give you living water. Jesus shows us what it is to love people and see them as image bearers. And how much more in the church of God should we be able to love one another so we can express to the world what living water really looks like? I don't know about you, but I want to get beyond mechanical church games and just showing up to church. It is time that we start to pursue one another and to spend time with one another. Before the Power Rangers could ever morph, before they could ever turn into Megatron, they had to first get to know one another. And that means slowing down and spending some unhurried time with your brothers and sisters. And oh, what would happen if we take all of our differences and brought them together? Northwest Indiana will be turned upside down to the praise of our Father. How do we know when we have accomplished this unity, unity that God desires? How will we know when we have created our own Megazord? Our Megazord should look like Jesus. This is what he says in Ephesians 4.13. Until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. 